While cholesterol levels may lead to concern about your physical health, how do we measure the health of a nation's economy? Our focus today on Stats and Stories is the measurement and assessment of national economy's health. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. I'm John Baylor from the Department of Statistics, and I'm joined on the panel today by Richard Campbell, Chair of the Department of Media, Journalism, and Film. Our guest today is Diane Coyle. Diane is the founder of Enlightenment Economics and Bennett Professor of Public Policy at the University of Cambridge. She was recently appointed Commander of the Order of the British Empire, CBE, for services to economics and the public understanding of economics. She is also the author of the 2014 book, GDP, A Brief but Affectionate History. Diane, welcome. Hello. Hello. Diane, I love the title of your book. Can you give a brief definition of GDP and describe why you, why you have an affection for it? <laughs> GDP stands for Gross Domestic Product. And it is really just what the words say. It's the sum of all the production in the domestic economy. So it's the sum of all the transactions that take place in, in the economy. It's a measure of economic activity. And if you look at it over long periods of time, it tells you really the story about uh, progress in the market economy, the uh, almost imperceptible increase through the Middle Ages and the Renaissance and the uh, 16th, 17th and 18th centuries. And then that acceleration, that takeoff that saw the dawn of, of capitalism and um, the kind of exponential growth that we've grown used to in modern economies. So GDP is in that sense telling us the story of our economic history. So when, when was it first used? Well, as we use it now and understand it now, it was a creature of the Great Depression and the Second World War. Simon Kuznets, whom a lot of people will have heard of, and somebody called Colin Clark here in the United Kingdom, were working in the 1930s on trying to measure the whole economy. The Great Depression meant that was the first time when any governments, and democratically elected governments, felt the need to... Uh, understand what was happening in the economy as a whole rather than in individual industries or to the banking sector, for instance. So that was when it started, but it crystallized into today's GDP during the Second World War when the Allies, the US and the UK, John Maynard Keynes on the British side, very famous economist, uh, devised the concept of GDP and its components and um, the way that you can add it up either as all the incomes in the economy all the spending in the economy or all the production in the economy. And it's, it's thought to have been one of the contributing factors to helping the Allies win the Second World War because they had a better handle than their opponents on just how much capacity there was available to produce the war effort and what sacrifices consumers were going to have to make as a result. Uh, very interesting. You, you make an argument that GDP was a good measure of prosperity in the 20th century, but is not such a good measure in the 21st century. Can you talk a little bit about what's happened and why we need to think about other components to GDP? The name um, gives, gives a clue. It's gross domestic product. But most of our economies now don't consist of material products or goods. They consist of services. When a lot of so much more of production consisted of the kinds of items that rolled off the mass production lines, automobiles or washing machines and so on. Then it made sense to think about adding up products in that way. But when you're talking about services, they become much more varied. The quality is much harder to get a handle on. It's even quite hard to work out 
prices for services because of that issue of quality adjustment. And so the whole issue, the whole issue of defining the economy as a whole becomes very much more complicated. We have much greater variety in the economy. We have more intangible goods and services. And that makes it um, just harder to define an aggregate and measure it in the way we have been doing. Because it's not just that you're adding up apples and pears, you're adding up apples and pears and uh, cars and refrigerators and uh, accountancy and law, and there are multiple varieties of all of these. And, and the information that you get from how we still define and measure GDP is just becoming increasingly less useful, I think, as the economy changes. So you talk about, in, in one of your writings, you talk about how household work is not measured in GDP. And how would you go about doing that, accounting for all this work that gets done that doesn't fall under the old definition of GDP? That's right. There was quite a debate at the dawn of GDP in the 1950s about whether or not work done in the home should be included in the aggregate measure or not. And the conclusion was not. In theory, if you produce goods at home, if you produce, grow food in your garden and take it to market, then that ought to be included, although, of course, it's harder to measure. And the reason for that is that GDP is an international standard definition that was meant to apply to much poorer countries as well, where there's a lot more of that kind of informal production and people selling things they make at home in the marketplace. So the goods got included, but the services, the housework and childcare and and, uh, doing your own garden and so on, did not. And um, that debate has always been one of the criticisms people, feminist scholars, obviously levy against GDP over the decades in between. And I think it's coming into play again because what seems to be a sharp boundary between work in the market and work at home is becoming blurred. You know, actually, it was never as um, clear as it seemed because through the uh, years in the second half of the 20th century, a lot more women went out to work. And that meant that they were, instead of sewing their own clothes and making all the food from scratch, buying ready-made clothes and ready-made meals. So there was already a shift towards the market that, in a sense, flattered our GDP figures over that period. Mm -hmm. But what's happening now with new technologies is that things that people used to buy in the market are increasingly being done at home. One example is all those intermediary activities like going to a travel agent or doing your banking where people don't go to high street stores anymore, they do that on their home computer. There's still an intermediary, an online company, but um, the prices are lower. You're putting in a bit of time yourself, but saving a lot of time, you get more choice. And many more people are providing their own services now in that way. The the famous or infamous sharing economy is blurring it as well because people are using some of their household assets like a spare room to Mm -hmm. uh, make some money and earn some money. And although in principle that ought to be captured in one of the measures of GDP, it's actually much harder to collect the statistics. Mm -hmm. And then finally, people are producing lots of free digital goods that they make available online. And some of those are pretty obvious. It's entertainment through uh, uh, free YouTube videos or podcasts that people put online and uh, people can freely enjoy, Uh, Wikipedia contributions, lots of online education. And there are some very nice examples Uh, One is that children who need prosthetic limbs grow out of them very quickly and they're really expensive or they were really expensive. But people have now put free designs online so that you can then download a design in the right size for the child and 3D print it at much lower cost 
with mm. older prosthetics. And that's a free idea that people, a free design that people have made mm. available. And um, so although they are not in our measure of the market economy, they're clearly contributing things of economic value. So the question is, how could you measure all of this? And I think the answer is probably the same way we measure lots of economic statistics anyway, which is using surveys. And a lot of the conventional statistics are, uh, are captured by sending surveys out to companies or individuals. We could do the same thing to capture what work people are doing in their, in their home. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're discussing how to measure a national economy in a world where we enjoy free internet resources, globally produced goods, and are concerned about the life cycle benefits and cost of products. Our guest on today's episode is Diane Coyle, Bennett Professor of Public Policy at the University of Cambridge. Diane, how difficult is it to modify an existing measure of economic performance when it's familiar and has been in use for so many years? The, the definition of GDP has been modified from time to time over the course of um, the, the decades since the Second World War when it was when it was invented. There are a, a number of big reforms that um, take 15 or 20 years of discussions among economists and statisticians and uh, a committee that sits under the auspices of the United Nations ultimately. And it's quite a big deal, but it, but it has happened. The thing about those changes is that they tend to be incremental changes. The fundamental concepts haven't changed that much. The biggest development really has been the development of what national accountants call the satellite accounts. And that includes, for example, um, a household satellite where they measure some of the domestic activities that we were uh, talking about a little while ago. They uh, have a, an environmental satellite where they, they try to capture a lot of the um, environmental externalities such as pollution or changes in asset values as resources get depleted, for instance, and, and they go into the environmental satellite. The, the trouble, I think, is that the process has put all the interesting things into the satellite accounts, and they're not what people pay attention to. The only thing that gets the attention is really that headline number of, of GDP growth. And it's not even that we look at GDP growth per capita, which is a, a better indicator if, you, if you're trying to get at economic progress or economic well-being in some sense. It's simply the change in the aggregate GDP figure from quarter to quarter that tends to get all the attention. So if you were in charge of everything... <laughs> What would you what would you replace? <laughs> what would you replace GDP with, or what would you call it for the twenty first century? I, I know you you also note that GDP is a it doesn't account for inequality, for example. So how could we measure how could we measure this stuff better today? Well, this is a big question, and. You know, as you've just alluded to, there are some long-standing criticisms that it doesn't take account of inequality is one, that it doesn't take account of damage to the environment caused by growth is another, mm -hmm. that it ignores all the work in the home as we've been discussing. And so you could take the view that uh, what we need to stick with the GDP framework, but just uh, uh, improve it to take account of, of these things and carry on with this process of incremental improvement. And, and that would be better, I think, you know, the, the, the figures that we have now. It would give us a lot more insight. But it's a very top-down measure. And mm -hmm. it, um, as the name suggests, it's about what happens in 
a, a nation within national borders in a world that's very globalized. Right. And it's extremely complicated yeah. to try and unpick mm-hmm. what's happening in terms of production when the supply chains cross many different country boundaries or, or even actually what, what the trade figures really are when you take account of all the components that uh, are imported into China to uh, assemble the iPhone there as it's re-exported, for example. So that's very complicated. So I'm playing with the idea now of a completely different kind of framework, which is bottom-up, and it says what um, economic assets do individuals or places have access to, and can you measure economic progress that way? And that would include um, the physical and financial capital that they have access to, which we think about conventionally. It would include natural capital and natural resources. It would include uh, intangible capital, ideas, and intellectual mm-hmm. property, and human capital, what skills and uh, what's, the, what's the quality of health of the workforce. And if you think about it in those ways, that kind of automatically gives you a distributional angle on it because you're asking people have certain um, certain wants, there are certain things they want to do economically in their lives. What capabilities do these assets give them to get on and do it? It's, it seems like there's a real challenge that's embedded in doing that. I mean, there's there there are inputs to these types of calculations, and it doesn't. It seems like the the inputs will vary in terms of the 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 uncertainty that are associated with them. It, yeah. When this was first proposed, I mean, as you mentioned, it goes back to the the 30s and 40s. Most of the manufacturing, most of the production was being done pretty much internal to a to the com- to a country. Mm-hmm. You know, and this that seems like this is you know all all bets are off right now. Right. In in terms of the way the the world works. So I I love the idea of expanding you know, this. I mean, you you talk about you know the complexity in these systems and and trying to measure productivity in such, with these complex systems and also then trying to quantify some of the sustainability. But but when you think about some of the these improved measures, you're going to have an improved measure that ref, that reflects some inputs that are probably better known than other inputs. How, what's the role of, of uncertainty in thinking about framing a measure such as GDP? We There's a lot of uncertainty about it. It's um, an amalgam of tens of thousands of different statistics collected from different sources. There's sampling error in all of that anyway. Um, they, there may just be um, errors in filling out the forms. Um, and then there are lots of processes that it goes through to combine into um, single indices and to adjust for seasonal variations that are predictable and then to adjust for general inflation so that you get a sense of what's happening in, in real terms, as we call it in economics. So the uncertainty around the figures that we look at every quarter is already immense. And I don't think people have enough of a grasp of how uncertain that is. The Bank of England does a, a quarterly report on the economy called the Inflation Report, and they publish what we call fan charts. And for the inflation, you see a line for the inflation figures up to the present, and then it fans out, mm. showing the uncertainty about the forecast. On their G- GDP chart, the uncertainty fans out around the future, but also around the present and the past, just reflecting revisions and the general mm-hmm. uncertainty about the figures. And so they're saying growth in the UK economy now could be anything between about 0% and 4%, which is a huge range. Yeah. Um, in terms of how quickly living standards are increasing. Mm -hmm. So there's already tremendous uncertainty. And I don't think 
uncertainty is a good argument against trying something new. But it will be a big task. It will involve collecting all kinds of different statistics and figuring out uh, the methodologies for combining them again. So you talk about uncertainty. This is something that journalists don't don't understand, don't report about. You, usually we see GDP reported and it's just numbers and they're presented as if these are this is just the way it is. They're they're often not explained to the general public in the same way they they show the stock market going up and down without ever explaining what exactly does that mean? What do those numbers stand for? Yeah. So right. So as, as someone who really understands this, can you talk a little bit about what journalists can do better and maybe some mistakes uh, they make that drive you crazy? Where to start? <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that uh, any journalism involving numbers never gives you, almost never gives you, is some sense of, is this a big number or a small number? Yeah. If it's 0.2, is that big or small? When in other contexts, we think a billion is a big number. Um, so there's that, that that kind of giving a context anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, so the sense of uncertainty that we were just talking about, that there are frequent revisions and anyway, the standard errors around the figures if one could calculate them, would be enormous. And um, and not putting so much weight on tiny changes. We mm-hmm. even get headlines now that yeah. the quarterly figure for GDP growth uh, annualised was revised from uh, 1.2 to 1.4, as if that's a headline story. But <laughs> mm-hmm. that's just the same number, really. And uh, I, I don't quite know how to get the journalists away from too much obsessing about individual numbers when yeah. it's only a sequence of them pointing in the same direction that will give you any information at all. And just generally, that there seems to be a lack of, I don't know what it is, critical thinking about numbers um, mm-hmm. that's quite widespread among journalists. And I know that um, there are lots of courses that they can do that uh, help them uh, understand it. Um, and I wish more of them more of them would take those kind of courses. Me too. You're listening <laughs> to Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. Today, our focus is on measuring the health of national economies. I'm John Baylor from Miami University's Statistics Department, and I'm joined by Richard Campbell from the Media, Journalism, and Film Department. Our special guest today is Diane Coyle, Bennett Professor of Public Policy at the University of Cambridge. In your recent book, you describe why Greece's chief statistician was charged with treason in 2013 for apparently doing nothing more than trying to accurately (laughs) report the size of the country's economy. Can you give a a brief summary of this situation? The case is still ongoing. He's still um, under threat of uh, judicial action. And um, this dates back to the Greek financial... The Greek financial crisis, and um, the the condition that the International Monetary Fund and the Europeans put on the bailout for Greece was that the statistical agency was revamped because the figures clearly had been made up prior to that period, uh, so that the Greek government could borrow more money because these figures, these uh, loans, are always assessed against the size of the country's GDP. And uh, so 
Andrews Georgie was brought in then and uh, did a really good job of sorting out the statistics. And among the things that he did was uh, sack the, um, the statistics board that had preceded him. And one of those started this set of legal proceedings against him. So he is fundamentally being uh, taken to court for producing accurate statistics. Um, the whole international economics community and statistical community is horrified by this. And I think it's um, a scandal that the Greek government and Greek legal system is pursuing him in this way. Somebody who's a dedicated public servant um, with a, a great international stature. It's, it, it indeed is one that's, that, that is, we've seen highlighted on, you know, in, in Significance magazine. We've seen we see the discussion still continuing. And I've, I've just recently seen some some efforts to think about um, kind of crowdsourcing some of the support for the defense for Georgiou. Yeah. yeah. And there's a petition of support that people can sign as well. Yeah, it's it's very shocking. Are you know are are you familiar with other circumstances where you've seen this? Um, I can't think of any exact parallel, and it's certainly not something that you'd expect in an advanced economy that belongs to the European Union. Uh, the, the The fundamental problem is that GDP is increasingly being used for what uh, would be called administrative purposes, like measuring the ratio of debt to GDP to decide how much a country is able to borrow. Or setting fiscal rules, um, depend, you know, limiting government borrowing depending on their relation to GDP. And given how um, uncertain the concept is and the fact that those uncertainties are growing, these administrative uses are very um, dangerous because they do tend to distort people's behaviour in ways that don't reflect kind of underlying uh, economic and public policy analysis. So I would like to see some other way of um, anchoring what governments ought to be doing with, with their fiscal policy rather than setting it in, uh, in relation to GDP. And you could make the same point about monetary policy as well, because many central banks set interest rates by looking at the gap between measured GDP and what they think some potential output of the economy is. Mm -hmm. And again, those are two mm -hmm. such um, fuzzy, uncertain numbers now that it does make me uneasy to think that interest rates, people's mortgage rates, are, are, are being determined in that way. Mm -hmm. So this is a this is a much sort of broader question that we ask some of our guests that are that are living in these times in which we have sort of very much fact based thinking, fact based evidence up against what I call faith based. You know, where you have. Mm. either faith in some spiritual realm or faith in somebody that told you something and you said, because I heard it from somebody that I trust, I believe it. So this is this has been going on for a while now. And I guess my question to you is, and this is a hard one because I, I wrestle with this one all the time, how do we do a better job of convincing people how important facts are, numbers are, evidence-based uh, research is in, uh, in a culture that seems to want to move in a different direction. And this is a, such a problem in the States right now. If this is a, a, a really difficult one, as you say. And there is a saying that um, there's so much demand among politicians and others for simple answers to complex questions yes. that they'll always get, get those supplied to them. Um, so I don't think it's ever been terribly easy. And I guess I come down to thinking that essentially there are two things. One is about the conversation and carrying on the conversation. Each year I organise a festival of economics 
here in the UK, we get several thousand people, buy tickets and come and hear the panels. So there's an appetite for it. Mm-hmm. And having experts like economists and statisticians uh, go out and talk to people, I think is really healthy. Um, that doesn't scale up so well in person. It'd be great to have a primetime television series about statistics. <laughs> yes. Um, but, you know, we have to do what we can in terms of that conversation. But the other thing I think is being really honest about the limitations of the statistics mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Because yeah. I think many people feel that, you know, as I was just saying about uh, the administrative uses of GDP, that, um, that the, the numbers can distort decisions. And take the environmental example. There are lots of environmentalists who feel that it is morally wrong to put numbers on the environment in any way. Mm-hmm. And economists feel that if you don't put numbers on the, on, the, on the environment, then people won't value it. But we ought to be um, really honest about the limitations of the numbers that we try. You know, we can try to value a particular natural resource, but there are elements of it that are truly invaluable, and that's got to be part of the conversation as well. So I think you can build more trust in the numbers if you acknowledge their limitations, honestly. Thank you. I'm in, intrigued at the, about the challenge of trying to monetize some of these resources mm-hmm. and some of the values. I mean, uh, thinking about the, you know, you, you talked about natural resources and, and trying, you know, how do, you, how do we put, put value on this for decisions? So what are some of the strategies that, that you see used for, for putting value on, on things like natural resources? This is an area where I think economists need to do some more um, some more thinking about it. One of the conventional methods is to um, do what's called um, a willingness to pay survey or willingness to accept. You ask people uh, how much would you have to be paid if you lost access to this particular area of parkland. So for some um, natural resources, you can do it that way. You couldn't do it that way for clean air, of course, because um, that, that question of it being invaluable really quickly comes in, comes into play. Sure. And there's a, a kind of adding up problem as well. You might be able to value the loss of one particular piece of woodland, but there comes a point when, a tipping point, when you lose so much of the woodland area that biodiversity is damaged and that the ability of the woodland to absorb carbon is, is damaged and those things hang together and you get an acceleration in the processes too. We don't have very good techniques for uh, incorporating those kinds of um, uh, non-linear changes and option values in how we how we approach this work. So I, I think we've got some work to do there. Well, I mean the the, the importance of economic and official statistics, I think, is is uh, is, is is there. I mean, I, I don't know that that many people appreciate that as as much as they probably should. Uh, yeah. How does someone prepare for for a career such as yours? I did. Um, a degree as an undergraduate in politics, philosophy, and economics, which I think has stood me in good stead over the years. And then I a PhD in economics. And um, that's become a, a, has been for a while now, a very quantitative subject. We do lots of um, statistics in the form of econometrics, statistics mm-hmm. applied to economics. And um, uh, many economists now do a lot of applied work, getting down into all the detail of different data sets huge interest now in um, big data and those kinds of techniques too, and new sources of data. So that's a very thriving area of economics. Um, But there are other routes, and um, here we have a growing number of apprenticeships. You can be apprenticed to the Office of National Statistics and take that route and get your training that way. But I guess any 
um, quantitative uh, undergraduate degree and, and graduate degree uh, will help you get into this kind of area. Economics is a, um, I think it's a science that's enriched by having people from lots of different backgrounds. And there's a great variety among people who um, engage in the kind of work that I'm doing now. Just my last question for you is, what, what do you like best about what you do? Oh, that's the hardest question of all. Um, <laughs> I, I love everything about, about what I do. Oh, wonderful. I really, I really love um, uh, understanding what different uh, sets of, what different data series tell you. I love um, plotting the data and visualizing it and picking out the stories from it. Um, but I also like going to talk to businesses to understand how they think about strategies and what kinds of variables they, they look at as they make decisions and does that mesh at all with our economic models. So I like, I like the whole gamut. There's a lot of variety. Oh, outstanding. Well, Diane, that's all the time we have for our conversation today. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Oh, indeed. Thank Stats you. And, yeah, Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media Journalism and Film and the American Statistical Association. Stay tuned and keep following us on Twitter or Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on our program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu and be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.